The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise, together. Hello, Rise Together listener, Dave here. I am just back from a trip to see some family and decided to invite you into a conversation today about the topic of regret. So a week ago today, I got a phone call from my mother. Sweet Patty Hollis rang at an unusually late hour, which uh, if you are one to not get too many phone calls and uh, certainly fewer from people you are close to after certain hours, you know uh, that could mean that there is important news or um, sad news. And as it turned out, this was both. Uh, my mom was calling to let me know that my grandma, Grandma Lee, 100-year-old baller that she is, got a rough diagnosis earlier in the day, uh, some cancer that she had, Back when she was a young 95, had uh, returned that uh, the tumor, as it turns out, is uh, fairly sized, and that at 100 years old, there aren't as many options when it comes to treatment uh, as much as it might be insight into the mystery of how she might uh, meet her maker, as it were, a thing that she has herself suggested many, many times that she is ready for as soon as he's ready to bring her on home, she's ready to go home. And yet 
receiving the news of a diagnosis and with a diagnosis with few treatment options, what ends up being a short window, two months worth of time, potentially it could be longer, but, uh, they uh, have suggested there's a possibility of this being as uh, quick as two months worth of time. My, uh, well, my, my immediate reaction was to try and be um, there for my mom, who as much as I know she has known that this is coming as well, uh, is as any of us would be, uh, you know, handling it with all the emotions that come in now having real insight into when the end uh, will be, or at least that it's coming sooner than we may have necessarily thought. Uh, and the next thing I did is, uh, in a world where my kids were heading back to Rachel the following day after school, uh, I booked a flight to come in and spend time with my grandma Lee, with my mom, see my brothers and sister, my, my dad. And it was a really, really wonderful, wonderful time. It's a strange thing. I mean, I, th I think I've said this every single time I've posted almost anything about my grandma recently, but uh, we never know how many more times we have to sit across from someone we love. We just don't know. I think uh, it's not until you're faced with something like a diagnosis or someone unexpectedly, you know, having something uh, surprise them life event wise that you are a little more closely tethered to the scarcity that is time and the real benefit that is, the real luxury that is uh, an ability to see the people that you love as often as you can. And yet, I'm not sure that we treat every encounter as though it could be our last or uh, that we're considerate necessarily of, oh, wow, uh, I might only have this many more visits with this person. Uh, Grandma Lee turned 100 years old back in December. There was a big party. And it was an unbelievable celebration of life. Uh, I'd, you know, I think been a little bit more conscientious of there being fewer opportunities in the rest of her life for me to spend time with her because a hundred in so many ways felt like a thing for like five years that we were collectively uh, cheering for and she was reaching for. Uh, she had like jokingly quipped that every day was a bonus day since she made it to this hundredth birthday. But as I left that trip that time back in December, I do remember doing the math, right? I live in Texas. She's in California. I've got four kids. There's, you know, like there's life. And I calculated, hey, you know what? I might have five to 10 really great quality hangouts left with my grandma in my life. And, uh, that timeline was me giving credit to the, the, the fact that, gosh, she's been through everything. And of course, she's going to outlive all of us because she's already survived as much as she has, and she's going to survive whatever comes next. And in the receipt of a message that says, hey, nope, it turns out time, she is a ticking. Uh, there's a window that is closing. Uh, the idea of just jumping on a plane and making it out uh, was somewhat of a no-brainer and uh, 
as we're going to have a conversation today about regret, I can tell you that rarely will you regret a spontaneous decision to be intentional in spending time with the people that you love. And in, in maybe just even hearing these words, uh, if there's someone who uh, hasn't reached out to, hasn't uh, you know, been connected to, even if it's just over FaceTime or a quick text uh, with someone that you care about, please don't take for granted that there will always be tomorrow or always be next week that uh, they can still receive that message. Uh, we just don't know. And it's uh, a reminder like this that reminds us. So I came into town and uh, made my way from the airport to the senior facility that she resides in. She loves this little community she gets to be inside of where she plays her bridge and hangs out and watches Angels games and uh, has the staff in stitches because she is uh, who she is. Uh, (laughs) Sometimes in stitches because there was intended humor and sometimes in stitches because she's a hundred and doesn't give a shit about... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what the rules necessarily are. Uh, she is, uh, she's interested in uh, a Burger King-esque kind of end of life. She wants to have it her way, and I don't blame her. I came in, I sat down. I did what I've done the last few times that I have been in her presence. I recorded our conversation. I did it without an intention of having the footage go anywhere as much as uh, I shared one of my visits not terribly long ago on social media, um, I recorded this for me because uh, as much as I do have every intention, I am 100% heading back to California uh, uh, as often as is a possibility for me between now and when she's not here any longer. Um, But I felt a little sense of urgency to try and not just be as present as I could be, but to also commemorate us having a conversation, us, um, you know, me asking her questions that uh, I'd kick myself if I didn't get a chance to ask them after she were gone. And she's a storyteller, you know, like she has an unbelievably vivid memory, a steel trap of a mind, a wry sense of humor, and uh, it all comes out when you get that opportunity to sit one-on-one with her. But one of the things that I inevitably got to in our time together was this question around regret. Like, you know, you've lived 100 years. You, you know, for those that aren't familiar, my grandmother is, uh, was the only U.S. born human in her family. Her brother and both parents were born in Italy. Uh, They came across on a boat. So as an immigrant who was, you know, acclimating to both uh, having been raised for some of her life in Italy, uh, but most, the vast majority of her life in the U.S., uh, she is someone who has had change as a constant in her life. Uh, She was married to my grandfather, an amazing man who also really struggled with mental illness and ultimately um, had his condition a thing that ended their marriage and uh, left her as a single mother of five children whom she moved cross country. Uh, Before having kids, she uh, was a veteran of war. Uh, 
She is someone who has just really had a front row seat to so much good, so, so much good, but also so many hard things. Um, She's previously lost a son to cancer, a grandson by suicide, certainly had a front row seat to mental illness and its effects on the family unit. And, uh, and it's just been this very resilient rock for whom she credits her faith uh, as a thing that got her through so many things. And so as I've sat with her, especially in these last couple of years, chronicling a little of the oral storytelling that is this extraordinary journey of her life, uh, I've, this isn't the first time I've asked this question, but with um, what, what seems to be a more sure sign of how her story on earth will end, I wanted to revisit the idea of regret. Uh, as it turned out, I, I had recently picked up, and I will recommend it, I'm going to refer a lot to this guy today, but there is a book that most recently came out, it, was, uh, it came out in February, called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward how looking backward moves us forward. It's by a guy named Daniel Pink. He is a number one New York Times bestselling author. He previously, um, his his most recent thing that you may be familiar with was a book called Drive that was all about the truth behind what motivates us. Anyway, super smart guy, funny guy, um, but a kind of research-based social sciences person. Like he dives into... Uh, in some ways, why we do what we do uh, in a way that maybe reframes how you think about a thing that you may have previously thought something different about. Anyway, I'm a big fan of his work. I had read this book, had this conversation, then I'm like diving in to find some more info on regret. And it turns out that he most recently was actually a guest on Armchair Expert, the podcast that uh, Dax Shepard and Monica Padman run. It's an, uh, an amazing show with fantastic conversations with a variety of guests. And uh, I ended up listening to that and I was like, well, this feels like an invitation to have a conversation today about regret and uh, share some of what I learned in reading the book and spending some time with a centenarian and uh, and even more some of what came out of uh, a podcast, a very entertaining podcast conversation between Dax, Daniel and Monica. So as I had this uh, moment with Graham, after she's regaled me about the sweetheart angel that was her mother for the uh, way that she was able to extend such love in an environment that also had to hold space for uh, a father who struggled with his own demons. Uh, Wine was his thing, and a lot of it there was as she's telling me about the the kind of challenges and and trials of what it was to raise these five kids or to uh, be a strong, independent, um, you know, she's just a strong woman uh, who really was ahead of her time in pushing back against what uh, it meant to be a woman or the roles as defined by society for what men or women can do for her entire life. I ask her this question, do you have any regrets? Do you look back on this life that you've led? Do you have any regrets? And without almost any hesitation at all, she says, nope, I have no regrets. Which uh, 
is very on brand for Grandma Lee because I think in part like surviving as many things as she has and persevering and overcoming and pivoting and adapting every time that she's had to, um, part of what has been built as a part of who she is, is something of stoicism, of being the rock, of, um, and I, I say this with so much respect, but almost at, um, at the expense of affording her um, the opportunity to reveal all of what she might be feeling, choosing to kind of keep that emotion inside. Uh, at, at times, I'm going to guess, because she thought it was what you were supposed to do or what she needed to do to keep going. And I only give the backdrop because my reaction to her answer was, that's impossible. I don't know how in a life of 100 years you could not have any regret whatsoever. And my incredulity, my disbelief is founded in part because I have lived the most extraordinary life. And I am grateful that every single thing has happened exactly as it has to get me to exactly where I am. I feel fantastic that so much learning and so much growth has come, albeit through a route I would not have myself selected. And also, I've got plenty of regrets. I like super identify with the idea of having regret. And it wasn't until I dove into this book and then had so much of what was read reiterated in this podcast that it reframed a little of what for me had been negative attribution to regret existing in the first place. Like I felt almost bad or weak for having regret as a part of my personal experience. But as it turns out, regret is singularly one of the most common human emotions that exists. But when you're sitting across from a woman who is 100 years old and has just received a diagnosis, you do not argue the merits of regret or not, question whether she you know, actually had regret or didn't. Uh, I instead you know, like spent some time doing a little journaling on, wow, what, you know, like what, what is it about regret? What is it against the backdrop of what I read in this book? Like, there's something in our wiring or our DNA or our esteem or our shame or whatever it might be that has manufactured something of a negative story when regret ends up being present. So the best and easiest way, uh, I think, to try and explain a little bit of what was in this book that uh, Daniel wrote, The Power of Regret, is to walk you a little bit through this conversation that they had in a podcast. If you are a listener of Armchair Expert, uh, there's going to be a lot that you hear here that uh, is going to sound familiar because I'm just, I've pulled up the notes that I took from listening to the episode and I'm just going to walk through it. it. It runs chronologically in a similar kind of way to what what aired on that show. But I think it's important because uh, in being able to deconstruct a little of what regret is and how it can be leveraged as a tool, for me, it offered me freedom. 
right? For me, it offered me information. Oh, wow, I have regret. What am I meant to learn from this feeling? Is there some kind of action I could take because of this information that would make my life better, that would make me uh, connect better or different in relationship or feel uh, something different about myself when I'm by myself? So uh, what's interesting is they start the conversation diving into this difference between shame and guilt, right? Shame being that I think Brene Brown defined, uh, I am something wrong, guilt being I did something wrong. Um, but their, their initial conversation was teed up against that backdrop because many times when we try to convince people that we don't have regrets, haven't had regret, regrets, um, and I'm, again, not going to paint this brush on Grandma Lee. I make no judgment of anyone who believes themselves to not have regrets. In some ways, there is a relationship that exists between that regret that we have and some shame that we carry for the behavior that made the regret a thing. Daniel, in response to Dax's observation about shame, says something to the effect, the effect of that uh, the denial of us experiencing or, or even acknowledging that regret has existed in our life is in some ways false bravado because we just don't have a handle as humans on how best to process negative emotion. And so what we tend to do, right? Broad generalization, but generally speaking, what we tend to do is either we ignore those negative feelings or we wallow in them, right? We either kind of push them away or mute them with some kind of negative coping mechanism or we become a victim and in some ways in a victim mentality have that thing become part of our identity, part of who we think ourselves to be. Uh, Daniel, who again, like part of the way that he ends up writing the book, he interviews 16,000 people in both a quantitative and qualitative study to understand the role that regret had played in their life. And the first thing that he points out, and I hope Grandma Lee doesn't get defensive with this, is that there are only two types of people that don't have regret. And that is people under five who have not yet developed something cognitively that affords them an ability to tap into regret as an emotion and sociopaths. <laughs> uh, he actually takes it a step further and says, if you don't have regret or experience regret that it's actually a sign of a serious problem because of the aha moment that he illuminates in the book, which is regrets make us better. They make us better if we actually deal with them properly and that they actually in existing are one of the most powerful resources we have for learning, for growth, for making better decisions. The next time we're presented with a similar situation uh, his theory is that we just haven't been taught how to deal well with the regret in the first place or the idea of regrets in the first place. So um, the first headline, as posited by Daniel Pink, is that this idea of no regrets isn't courage, right? Like, and I think that there is sometimes when you're like, yeah, I don't have any regrets as this like, I've, you know, like I'm, I'm happy with the way everything has worked out or I'm become who I have because of all my decisions, good and bad. Um, but there isn't something necessarily courageous in that declaration as much as there may be delusion, right? That you can both be, uh, you know, someone who is happy with who you've become because of the way everything worked out and still have regret, 
they dive into this idea of counterfactual thinking, which is an interesting thing uh, to consider when it comes to regrets, because counterfactual thinking is part of what I think keeps this as a negative thing in our minds. The example that he uses is the example of the Olympics. So he suggests, hey, if you were to just see the faces of the medalists on the platform, they're not standing one taller than another, they're not in order, they're just there, and you're trying to decide by watching facial expressions only which of them is the happiest, on a logical basis, you'd think that the gold medal winner is the most happy, and the silver medal winner is the second happiest, and the bronze medal winner is the third happiest, but in fact, that's not the way it works. As it works, the gold medal person is, of course, pumped because they won, and the bronze medal person is actually close to being as excited as the person who won gold, while the silver medalist tends to be, in some ways, kicking themselves because of how they focus on this idea of if only, right, if only I had run faster, if only I had paddled faster, if only I had jumped farther, instead of appreciating what they did and what they did relative to everyone who finished behind them, right? The silver medalist is tapping into a counterfactual detail, right? Not as things played out, but how things could have played out only if they had worked harder, only if they had tried better, if only if they, like, they're not operating off of the facts of reality. They're operating off of this manufactured set of things that didn't happen, but they wish would have. And the opposite, right? That's called an upward counterfactual, where you're looking at someone who's achieved something more or done something better, and you're saying, oh, only if I had done X or Y then. And the, the bronze medalist is actually on the opposite end of that spectrum. They are something that you call a downward counterfactual, where they actually imagine how it could have been worse. At least they got that bronze medal, unlike fourth and fifth and everyone else that finished behind them and is going home with nothing to show for all the work they put into the four years of training for that one moment in that Olympic race. This is at least what I was able to do as opposed to if only, right? And so as it turns out, at least mindset, at least posturing, at least thinking ends up making us feel better where if only thinking makes us feel worse. But, and this is like one of those things that again, you gotta like really sit with, even though if only makes us feel worse, it's actually the thing that makes us do better, right? And they make us do better, right? The if only thoughts make us do better because they make us feel worse, <laughs> right? There's something in the sauce there that ends up making uh, positive action a thing that we feel galvanized toward or motivated for because we're, we're interested in trying to not have to feel that way next time for um, changing the pattern, changing the way we showed up, changing the way that we do, which uh, I certainly relate to. I, I've got plenty of times where I can look back in my life and I can say, man, if only I had fill in the blank, 
And that as a thing, right, has sometimes been a source of shame where I've become hard on myself and let that negative critic inside really start chirping. But the times when I've been able to dive into self-reflection, ask a better set of questions, really diving into, well, is there something I could do differently in the habit, in the routine, in the way I'm attaching in the relationship, in whatever it might be? That's that invitation for growth. That's the invitation to learn from something that you didn't do as well as you would have hoped and uh, have an outcome that ends up being different because of changing the way you're engaging. So the headline in all this ends up being that regret ends up being a super instructive, very clarifying emotion. It's a thing that you are absolutely 100% interested in having, but unfortunately, of course, it's a thing that you can't access without the introduction of just a little bit of pain. So part of it is the ask of like, is there a possibility of reframing the feelings that you have when it comes to regret, not as a negative, not as an indictment, not as a shame spiraling, you know, bad guy, but instead as a knock on the door, as an invitation, as something that is attempting to have you um, look at it as a resource, as information. So there's, there's always going to be an opportunity to, um, you know, have these moments in our lives as things that we get to assign value to and the ability for you as you experience regret, which by the way, is an unbelievably normal, super universal emotion on this planet makes you a normal human being to feel, okay, now that you've maybe normalized that you are not, of course, alone in this. Um, is there a way for you to see it as an invitation for growth, for learning, for figuring out how you're going to not step on your shoelace the next time uh, it becomes untied, but instead witness, notice that shoelace, uh, bend down, tie on up before the trip ends up happening. Dax ended up asking, in the case of this Olympian story that came out of the book, there was uh, a runner who had, who had led a very, very long race. I don't know if it was uh, more than a marathon or not, I can't remember, but uh, had, had led start to near finish of this entire race and at the very, very last second, finishes in second. And is in, in kind of processing that, like if they have the if only, um, his question to Daniel was like, is there the chance that you... I kind of start like beating yourself up in this question asking process where you've actually already given your very best effort, where you've actually done every single thing that you could to produce the very, very best result. And as it turns out, the best result for you was second place, right? Like Daniel basically said like, hey, there's still a benefit to the process, even if you experience some kind of regret and you find in diving into it that, oh, as it turns out, I did do every single thing the same way I might do it in the future. As it turns out, my best and most perfect version of running that race still wasn't going to be good enough to beat that person who ran their best and most perfect race on that day. And that also ends up becoming something of freedom because now you get to completely have peace in recognizing, wow, I felt the feeling, I did the investigation, 
I did train. I, I, I was in integrity. I did do the things that I suggest I would do. I kept promises to myself. Whatever it ends up being, now I can make peace with the fact that having given my best effort, though I am disappointed in the result, I'm not disappointed in, my, in myself because I know I gave my very best. One of the things they dive into in the podcast, I, I, I don't, I'm trying to remember if this was in the book, but it was just a, such a fascinating thing. And I think it's going to resonate for many of you. In the survey they did of the 16,000 people on what they regret, one interesting insight was in this, in this like really wild paradox that exists between the idea of free will and everything happening for a reason. And I find this a thing that's important to talk about because of what I kind of led with. I absolutely have an appreciation that everything had to happen the way that it did for me to become who I am proud of and am today in a way that I wouldn't change a thing. I would not change things. I don't want to go through some of the things that have created growth. I don't want to step on my own foot. I don't want to make some of the choices that I made that led to some of the growth or led to some of the learning or led to uh, being forced in some aspects to my knees. Uh, I don't, but I wouldn't change them. And so this idea of everything happening for a reason and the idea of free will is in fact a paradox. And I'll, sh and I'll show you why. So 16,000 people interviewed, mid 80%. 80 plus percent said that they believe that they have free will. And then later in the survey, he asks a question in a different way that would get to the bottom of, do you think that everything ultimately happens for a reason? And a similar mid 80s, 80 plus percent of people said that they do. And so, you know, like in trying to like make sense of this, like why, how can this conundrum exist? How can we both believe that we have agency and free will in our life and also think that, you know, everything happens for a reason or be happy at a minimum, even if it's not that it happens for a reason, that who you've become, what you've learned, how you've grown is a byproduct of what you've been through. How can those two things coexist? And the answer is, even though it in some ways defies logic, because they are in fact things that would cancel each other out on some level, we don't necessarily operate as logical beings because we're human beings. And there is something human in wanting to both have agency over our life or believe that we have free will and believe that we are the beneficiary of, that we are, you know, it's Tony Robbins' line, you know, are there things happening to you or happening for you? We want to believe that things are happening for us because it makes us feel better about having to handle the shit burger that gets thrown our way when we didn't order that off the menu. You know, and speaking of agency, and this was, a, I thought, an interesting point, regret requires agency, right? The idea that you are in control, that you are making choices in how you engage, interact, how you do or don't do, um, all of that requires agency and that makes regret your fault. Um, but the point that ends up being made that I think is maybe the most important takeaway on this idea of agency is that there's a big, huge difference between regret and disappointment. Right. Like it's it's OK, again, in that like the story of the Olympian who loses the race at the end of the race. Right. That what may have initially felt like regret for not having 
pushed harder or trained harder or done more to be physically in a position to not just have uh, the lead for 98% of the race, but the lead for all 100%, um, once that kind of dive into, well, what did I do? Like, what did I do for this outcome? That's the agency piece. When you do get to a place where you realize, oh, well, I did everything I could. I did everything I could in the way that I know best how to do. That allows that regret to shift into disappointment. And disappointment, again, an obviously very present and totally normal emotion of our human experience. When it comes to regret, in the book, he dives into these four different kinds of regrets. And uh, I identify with having all four of them. Uh, you may only have one or two of them, but I think it's interesting when you name something in some strange way, you start to take some power away from that thing. And so um, the first of the four regrets is something called a foundation regret, right? So these are the regrets around if I'd only done the work, uh, I, I wish I'd have saved more money. I, I wish I'd have worked harder in school. I wish I'd have uh, paid more attention to my health or taken better care of my body. These are those small decisions that accumulate over time and that over the long arc of time lead to bigger bad consequences, right? Um, they're super hard to undo. <laughs> they are hard to undo a line that he used in... Uh, in the podcast was that uh, something to the effect of someone had shared that they'd gone bankrupt and the person he was sharing with said, so when, so when did you go bankrupt? And he said, or how did it happen? And he said, well, it happened two ways, gradually and then suddenly. <laughs> and, and that's how foundation regrets tend to work. It's these like micro decisions that you make over a long period of time that end up leading to a macro issue. And so um, you just have to be considerate of one, uh, we have no time machine. There isn't a ton that can be done in some of the foundational stuff of the past, but you know, old Chinese proverb, when's the best time to plant a tree? Best time 20 years ago, next best time it's today. Right. And so the prescription that Daniel would recommend in any kind of foundational regret is action today, starting now, doing something to disrupt the pattern that has existed because there's still in agency an opportunity to change what's been for what will be, right? And, and some of the things that are important when it comes to um, why foundational regrets tend to be big ones is um, what the, some, a, a term that he defined as temporal discounting. It's this idea that we place too much value on the decisions that we're making today and not enough on the value of the consequences of tomorrow. Uh, and so there is something in being able to like pull yourself back and appreciate that every action today has an impact on an outcome tomorrow. And the second piece, which is uh, like very much tied to this, is the, like the idea of compounding interest. That the you know short-term impact to a drive-through, the short-term impact to, you know, not returning a phone call or not connecting with a loved one, or the short-term impact of uh, making a morbidly questionable decision is something that as you continue to make those choices over time, uh, it's not like one and one equals two. It's like one and one equals 
2.1 and 2.1 and 2.1 equal 4.4. And just over time, you're compounding interest in a way that really has that curve take a spike toward the back end of time. What's crazy too, is you like think about the prescription piece, right? Uh, when's the best time to plant a tree? If you can't have a, a time machine, then you go ahead and plant one today. Um, often the, the idea that agency being the prescription is the thing that we have to do. Um, we also forget sometimes that uh, the length of time that we didn't tend to the foundational thing and the amount of time that we hope the remedy will uh, reverse its effects are completely off. I remember having a, a conversation with John Acuff one time, might've been on a John and Dave show, miss that guy. But he said something to the effect of, you know, like it took you five years to gain the weight and you're frustrated that it hasn't all come off after a five week fitness program. Right? We're like, we're, we're, we're bad at uh, appreciating. That's kind of the temporal discounting thing too. Like we're bad at appreciating that the things that have uh, been built uh, will, will maybe take as much, maybe not as much, but at least more time than we think to unwind and undo because uh, that's just the way it works. All right, so the first one is foundational regret. The second one is something uh, they call boldness regret. Boldness regret. So... Um, this is, I wish that I'd, you know, spoken up for myself. I wish when I had that encounter with this person that I was attracted to, that I'd actually said it out loud. I wish, like, I wish I had believed more in myself to advocate for myself, to uh, take a chance to, uh, to, to, you know, do something that was kind of outside of my kind of quote unquote safe zone or my, my, uh, my security and, uh, and take a chance for myself. I'm looking outside of my window on the back patio, pause for a second. And there is an armadillo walking across my grass. I have, uh, unfortunately seen them on the side of roads, never in person. And I am, I mean, one obviously distracted from this conversation and also desperately wanting right now to feed this armadillo a piece of bread. I'm not going to. I digress. Uh, boldness regrets. So the prescription for a boldness regret, man, I wish I would have put my hand in the air for that promotion. I wish I would have uh, taken a chance, you know, in business or taken a chance in relationship or taken it. I wish. Um, the prescription is to the next time an opportunity presents itself, you're going to put yourself in the game. You're going to raise your hand. You're going to say what's on your mind. You're going to be bold as, as much as, you know, not taking that chance or being as bold as you wish you had certainly can create regret. The, the, the antidote is, all right, I'm going to learn from how it felt to not, uh, you know, assert myself and I'm going to be more assertive. We can often get into something of a scarcity mindset around all of our big opportunities already being behind us. Like we don't give enough credence to the possibility that there is abundance in what ends up being chances for us to be bold looking forward because of how fixated we are on how much of what we didn't assert ourselves for in the past. And the headline is, of course, there are a, there are there is abundance in the number of chances that will present 
each of us an opportunity for boldness looking forward. We just have to believe that to be true and keep our eyes out for it so that when we see it, we actually jump at the chance. All right, so you've got uh, uh, foundation regrets, boldness regrets. The third one that they talked about was the idea of moral regrets, right? This is just like simply not doing the right thing when you should have. Like, you, you know right from wrong. You know how to like act in a way that keeps integrity with what you suggest your your values are or who you, you know, like hope to know yourself as when you're by yourself and you, and you just didn't do it. So this could be bullying in school when you were little or infidelity in a, in a monogamous relationship or uh, cheating on an exam or whatever it might be, right? You know right from wrong, you did wrong. Um, and this is one of those things where, Again, this for Dax in the, in the podcast for sure was the one that he identified as having been his biggest area of regret. He has struggled with addiction, some, some around choices with women, and interestingly also like projects like, hey, as much as I have awareness of this as a thing, it's the thing he had the most fear of potentially crossing a moral line in the future uh, to have to like deal with regret once again. And uh, what Daniel suggests in this one, in terms of a prescription or solution, uh, was in response to Dak's confession that, man, this, is a, this has been a space for me that has not been ideal, and it's probably the way that I am going to make trip-up mistakes in the future, and I don't like that, and I know that the future version of me is going to um, have regret for the decisions that I'll make. And so Daniel's suggestion was, tap into this future version of yourself who's going to look back with regret and take advice from that guy. And I think we all have that. Call it your conscience, call it the angel on your shoulder, call it, you know, whatever. The voice of uh, your critic who's got nothing to say when you've done something right. The, The idea that you know how hard you can be on yourself and how much you can beat yourself up and that if that let down version of you in the future as a person you could tap into, what advice would they give when you're confronted with a moral dilemma of whether you do right or wrong? All right. And then the fourth one is connection regret. And connection regret is all about uh, how we connect with the people that we love, reaching out to someone that you care about, maintaining friendships, building intimacy in, in, in relationships. Um, Not every relationship is meant to last as it was at one point forever and ever. And yet there are plenty of people that we have just kind of fallen out of contact with. There's some regret that might exist in that relationship having fizzled. And we find ourselves not taking action because of two things. This insecurity that if we reach out to them, that they're not going to want to hear from us or be interested in what it is that we're, you know, interested in connecting, catching up, whatever it might be, or two, that it's going to be awkward or it's going to be creepy or like somehow because of time passage, it's just going to make the whole affair feel odd because you used to be in real frequent conversation and contact and now too much time's gone by. It just feels weird. And what's crazy is, of course, like, Um, This is intuitively a thing I think we can all leap to, but Daniel's also got a ream of research that says every piece of evidence suggests that it's going to be way less awkward 
when you actually reach out. And when you think the other side isn't going to care or that insecurity says, oh, they're going to give me a response that might have me feeling rejected, you're just wrong about that too because everyone on some level craves craves uh, both connection and love. How, how do you know was a question that came up. How do you know if someone you were in a relationship that went away wasn't something that you should have worked harder for? Okay. How do you know if someone you were in a relationship with that went away wasn't something you should have worked harder for? And the answer from Daniel was simple. It's if you don't regret it, if you don't regret that relationship going away, you've got your answer, right? Like there isn't a ton of debate as to whether or not you should continue to fight for something if there isn't some twinge, tinge, whatever the word is, of regret that has you kicking yourself for not having uh, maintained contact or stayed in touch. When in doubt, <laughs> when in doubt, when it comes to connection regret, reach out. Because as they talked about in the podcast, and this is, of course, a no-duh, aha kind of thing, the worst-case scenario is that the status quo is maintained, right? Like, you, you already don't have a relationship with this person, so there's literally nothing to lose. The worst case scenario and the status quo are actually the same thing. And so if there's someone, as I'm speaking these words, that comes to mind where you're like, dang, I miss Jennifer. You know, like we used to be so close and gosh, it's been like, has it been five years now since we've, you know, connected? You, you better text Jennifer though. Just reach out. Who cares if it's awkward for a second? It might afford you something in connection, in love. And at a minimum, the absolving of any kind of, uh, of regret for um, the way that things may have ended for attempting through agency to write that thing that, uh, that previously was potentially in some way wrong. Next is that you know, the way that he ends up doing this research, 16,000 people, it's, you know, across nationality, it's across gender, it's across age, and they're cutting this information like anybody would into a bunch of different de demographic segments to see if there's anything that pops when it comes to, oh, well, you know, people U.S. or non-U.S. or men versus women, old versus young. And as it turns out, there were just a lot of universal things, irrespective of where you live, how old you are, whether you're a man or woman or any, like all of it was almost negligible because as it turns out, people regret a lot of stuff. If you regret things again, you're normal, just like me and the rest of humanity. Um, but most of the regrets, most of the regrets could be boiled down into a simple universal regret. So he gave this example when he was talking, if you think about uh, college grads, right? For college grads, an overwhelming high number of them regretted not studying abroad. I am among the people who have this regret. I went to Pepperdine, there was this great overbroad, uh, abroad program, you could go to Heidelberg, Germany, you could, anyway, there's a variety of places. And I have thought about not going abroad at least one time a year for the last 25 years. It's such a bizarre thing. So uh, college grads, that was one of the things that really stood out for them. Uh, people in careers, right? They'd been in a company or a corporate setting for most 
of their adult life, many of them had regrets over not leaving a job they didn't love to start a business or being brave enough to leave a company that they had comfort in for something that was maybe less certain, but could have afforded them something in growth. And uh, in romantic terms, people regretted meeting a person that they were interested in and that they didn't make a more deliberate move with, okay? All three of those things, right? The college grad, the person that's, you know, like didn't make a move in a romance situation that was, you know, that came and went to pass them by. And a, a person who didn't leave a job or didn't, you know, leave their comfort zone inside of a career, all of those are the same regret. And that's the regret of not taking a chance, right? That's a boldness regret. And so, all of these things end up coming back into each of those four categories, even if they come from different parts of the population, or even if the scenario of their regret sounds a little bit different, they all get boiled down into, the, into those four things. And so as it turns out, all regret ends up coming back to human needs, right? All that regret tells you is what people or you value most in your life. Right when it comes to uh, the foundational piece, we regret uh, regret we value stability. Right, stability is a thing that we value for the most part. People like to have something in what feels like predictable circumstances and outcomes. We like stability, and so foundational things that we tend to regret are the things that compromise our pursuit of a stable environment. If we made bad choices and it affects our health or bad choices in not having worked hard enough and it affects our ability to provide for our family or bad, whatever it ends up being, it all comes back to this desire we have for stability. We desire richness, we desire growth, we desire purpose or meaning or mattering, uh, stimulation on some level, right? A good life is, is one that's rich, that's full, that's psych psychologically stimulating. And so um, doing stuff that matters ends up being important to us and boldness, right? Having the willingness to be brave enough to advocate for ourselves, or take chances or put ourselves into the game, well, that serves that need. Uh, being good or doing what's right, that is a, a value that most people have, right? It's, it's a good thing when people regret bad behavior. Uh, if we didn't have a broader swath of society that regretted morally objectionable behavior, we would be in trouble. <laughs> I, if nothing else, it, it suggests that there's a little bit of hope for this world where people still feel a pull towards light versus dark, good versus bad, being uh, a moral upright citizen is a thing, of course, that uh, I hope everybody values and that there might be regret in times that we deviated from that is a good thing. And of course, we, we value connection. We need connection. I mean, a thing that was no more made very, very transparently uh, transparent in the pandemic, like we need, we need connection. We want and we value love. And so of course, if there are things in connection, regret that pop up for us, it's because it's compromising our pursuit of that value. So those were some of the things that were, oh, you know what? One other thing that I thought was so great is that there is, uh, Daniel has in the book, this three-step process for how to deal with regret. How do you deal with regret? Well, Daniel boils it down into three things. So the first thing is compassion. 
compassion. As it turns out, self-compassion may be more uh, an appropriate way to call it, but compassion. How we think about ourselves ends up being so important in anything that uh, has to do with regret. Uh, Most of us are pretty hard on ourselves. Well, I guess I don't want to speak for anyone else. I'll just say Dave Hollis is pretty hard on Dave Hollis. I am a very, very tough critic of myself, and uh, compassion isn't necessarily something that I have uh, afforded myself in abundance, but being super hard on ourselves, being very critical of ourselves, uh, like having shame as a co-pilot, it doesn't serve us. And so this idea of self-compassion is just this simple notion of the, the idea that we would treat ourselves with, com- with compassion or kindness rather than contempt. And that uh, we in some ways um, also have to try and like remind ourselves that uh, we're not special or unique for feeling these feelings. <laughs> so that's, that's two things, but like part of like how you arrive at self-compassion is by um, stepping back just a little bit and reminding yourself that like these feelings, this emotion, it's normal and human. And that because you have them, it doesn't make you unique and that there isn't any reason to like um, think that in some ways you're, you're wired differently or that there must be something wrong with you for feeling it. This is just what happens. This is the way life is. So if you can accept that regrets are universal and normal, maybe it ends up also then being permission to just go easier on yourself. <laughs> One of the lines they said, I, I had never thought of it this way, but self-pity and self-criticizing ourselves is actually an act of narcissism. And self-compassion is actually what helps deconstruct those narcissistic thoughts. So interesting, the idea that self-pity or self-criticizing in some ways could be selfish or self-absorbing. And yet, um, when you really you know, kind of take a second to think about it, um, that is in part because you have elevated the thing that you're feeling as being unique or special to you, that you uh, in some ways are different from others for feeling something that they couldn't possibly understand. And of course, if it's universal, that just isn't the case. Okay, so compassion is the first step for how to deal with regret. The second step was this idea of disclosure, right? Because I think uh, like any negative emotion that we process, uh, regrets, They are eating us alive. And so talking honestly about them, giving them some air, uh, like opening the door so that light might come in, it is the vehicle to becoming unburdened from them, right? Our our feelings also uh, around regrets tend to be a bit more nebulous. Like they're they're not um, as clear or as defined as they become once we actually put them into words. And so part of what Daniel advocates for is like, if you can speak these thoughts into actual words, or maybe even better journal about them and really get specific about what it is that you're feeling, then we make them a bit more concrete. In their concreteness, there's less scariness, there's less shame, there's more information that we can now take action on. And in that agency, we can feel better about how we're going to make different choices, build new habits, have different kinds of relationships, whatever it might be. The act of disclosure in some ways is your way of deciphering the information that is being presented by regret 
And now in writing it down or saying it out loud, allowing it to become something of an action plan on how you take the information and turn it into learning or growth because of how you're going to apply it in your life. And then the, the third piece, compassion, disclosure, and the third piece is distance. Distance. So the remedy for regret is distance. How do you create distance from regret? Well, the way that you do is by taking the lesson, taking the information, taking what that regret, those feelings were meant to draw your attention to and turn it into action, turn it into that agency and then commit to anything that comes from the learning that uh, will afford you an ability to evolve, to grow, to handle it differently. Does it mean that you will not experience regret in the future? Of course not. You may take a learning from what you did that has you feeling regret, implement it, and still find yourself experiencing feelings of regret. And all it is is another invitation to ask what could be learned in this new approach so that I can find another new approach the next time I do. But every time you take that information, every time you take it and apply it inside of your life, now you are giving yourself an opportunity for growth. And in every step you take, that's a different step than the one you took before. You are moving away. You are creating distance from that regret. So, uh, the long and the short of it is, if you are interested in uh, learning any more about uh, regret and its role in your life, uh, again, the book that I was referencing, it's Daniel Pink, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Um, and if you want to listen to he and Dax and Monica chat up something that will sound very familiar to what I just walked you through, um, check out Armchair Expert. It's over on Spotify, hashtag not an ad. And if uh, you are a human who believes in a higher power, I'm going to ask you for prayers for my one and only Grandma Lee. She, if nothing else, has been a model of uh, what it looks like to have faith, what it looks like to be um, just really comfortably accepting of what is happening in real time, not just with this diagnosis, but every time in her life that I have known her where something unbelievable was coming up, there was a piece that often, and almost every time she will credit to her faith, that is afforded in just accepting that um, this is something that I am also going to experience and will come out the other side of because of my willingness to just be in it. And so, uh, all of that said, it doesn't change the fact that uh, she too is human, that my mother, uh, my, my mom and dad had had uh, my grandma living at their house for about five years before uh, she was ready to move into this senior living facility. Uh, my mom has been just such an extraordinary caretaker of her mother. And as much as I know that she shares her mom's faith, my faith, um, I know how hard it is for a child to confront the end, even if you already knew it was coming. So I would ask, uh, I'd ask you to pray for my family, I'd ask you to pray for uh, peace and, uh, and no pain, really, for Grandma Lee and this journey that sits in front of her, uh, that you would pray for my mom and dad and my siblings and the other of her children, my aunts and uncles and their kids, 
that we would all be on a journey of peace and acceptance and uh, and maybe that we would uh, in the midst of confronting the end also see some of the good that comes in last minute trips into town to sit and be in the presence of people that you love. I know that uh, my usual frequency to California is something that will dramatically change in the next couple of months. And, um, and I look forward to it, even if and as it ends up having uh, a final chapter that we know uh, is coming soon. Anyway, I appreciate you all. I hope that you're having a fantastic week. If you are someone who has let regret really overwhelm or hijack part of your mental well-being, uh, I'd invite you to try and see regret through a different lens, through the lens of it as a resource that if you were able to tap into it, could afford you the learning and the growth and the agency to have a richer, fuller experience in life in a way that maybe, God forbid, has you even grateful a little bit from what you learn through the things that you regret. Between now and next week, I hope you're having a rad week. We'll see you in the next episode of the Rise Together podcast. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. 